Hey everyone, all this month we're asking you to tell a friend about a podcast they'll love. Right now, think of a friend, a family member, anyone you care about. What podcast would they really love? Got it? Now do it. Tell them about it on social media or in real life if you still talk to people that way. And if they don't know how to subscribe to podcasts, show them how. Then tell us what you recommended with the hashtag tripod. That's T-R-Y-Pod. Thanks for spreading the word. Hello and welcome to Achievement Oriented, The Ringer's official video game podcast. I am Jason Concepcion. I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. And joining me today, preparing for his romance with various species of (laughs) aliens, it's Ben Lindbergh. I'm so ready for some space sex. (laughs) We're not going to talk about Mass Effect until next time. We're early this week. It's Tuesday. This was our initial plan, was to put out episodes on Tuesday, because we figured games come out on Tuesday. Then we realized we have to play the games before we can talk about them. So we'll be back for a second episode later this week. And one more reminder for people who are still subscribed to the Channel 33 feed and are getting our podcast that way. Achievement Oriented has its own official feed, Achievement Oriented, under the Ringer Podcast Network's Aegis. Mm-hmm. And we welcome you to subscribe there. Yes, please do. You can also find us on Twitter at Achievement Pod. Which is, by the way, as far as I know, still the number one podcast. In- <laughs> as, <laughs> far I as, checked, know, as far as just, I know, when I checked three weeks we're ago. Never gonna, we're no, never going to look again. Because <laughs> as long as yeah. we don't look and see something else that's correct. in our minds, it's still true. That's correct. That's how the world works now. Yeah. Later in this episode, we're also going to talk about esports stats. So we're going to talk to Jeffrey Liang about League of Legends and Daniel Lee about Super Smash Brothers. So they're going to tell us about statistical analysis. Analysis in esports, which is still sort of a, a fledgling subject, but yes. pretty fascinating. But first, we're going to talk about Ghost Recon Wildlands, the Ubisoft developed latest entry in the Tom Clancy video game universe, another huge open world shooter and good fodder for a discussion about representation and violence in video games. Just briefly, before we start bashing, Ghost Recon. <laughs> Do you want to say anything about it as a game? Because we're not going to talk about it so much as a game as as, as a story. In terms of the gameplay, uh, it's very interesting because this is a game that wants you to play. You know, the brand is this tactical, slow gameplay. At the same time, it's much more fun if you go in just guns blazing and uh, trying. It's essentially like a half-speed version of Mercenaries, that's not as fun. If you remember Mercenaries <laughs> from two console generations ago, Mercenaries yes. 1 and 2, an extremely fun game, open-world game, that I wish they'd bring back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, half-speed, that does not sound like an improvement. No. <laughs> All right. Well, you want to tell the people about the first two guests we're talking to? Today, we're going to talk to uh, Reed McCarter. He's a writer and editor based in Toronto. His work has appeared on Kill Screen and Playboy. He's the co-editor of Shooter as well as Bullet Points Monthly, a podcast. And Hugo Montembeau, he's a lecturer in video game studies at the University of Montreal and a PhD candidate in art history and film studies. Gentlemen, thanks for being with us for our first all-Canadian pod. Yeah, yeah, seriously. (laughs) Except you. You're the only one who's not at all Canadian here. Guest, guests. (laughs) guests. And half of me. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you for having me on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for having me too. So, uh, Reed, you just released a, a review of Ghost Recon Wildlands. I, you found the game appalling in, in <laughs> certain ways. Uh, could you just give a rundown of, of what you thought about the game? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, appalling is is a, is a pretty good word for it. I had reservations about this game from the first time I heard about it, but I was hopeful that maybe it would be uh, better than what it looked like on the tin. But turns out that a game where you play as uh, special ops, American special operative soldiers, you know, on a covert mission to kill Mexican cartel members in Bolivia without any <laughs> government permission is um, it's, it's just about as bad as it sounds. <laughs> it, it's yeah, I don't know. I, I was pretty hard on it in the review. There's a lot to deal with with this game that I think is is pretty troubling for mainstream games and sort of what we've maybe become used to with these kind of games. Hugo, when I when I talked to you for my first person shooter piece that I did a few months back at the Ringer, yeah. I was asking you about realism in games and what kind of expectations those create in the player, what kind of responsibilities a game developer might or might not have when they create a game that's extremely realistic. I think there's there's it's an interesting choice 
who developers decide to make an enemy in a shooting game. What are the responsibilities of game developers now with like just the horsepower, the technology, the graphics technology that they have, the photorealistic graphics that they're able to create in kind of like rendering these extremely realistic, violent games that depict real life nations under assault from American special forces? You, yeah, you bring a really, really great question, a really complex question, uh, I might say, the one of realism. Uh, I reflect on that and um, I come to the conclusion that game designer with all this powerful realism that they can create have more than ever a really huge responsibility. And this is the point, responsibility, because they're offering a game for, for players and players going to uh, learn from these games, going to interpret these games, going to experience this game. They're probably going to enjoy it for this kind of a really action-packed gameplay which is related to the uh, gaming experience of modern warfare, let's say. All this high-tech gears and vehicle and highly detailed environment, etc. And so it, it could be really appealing for player. The counterpart of that is it's kind of act as a subtle propaganda, like a hmm. kind of a recruiting tools like America's Army, but in a more subtle way, hidden behind fictions. This is quite problematic. And game designer clearly have a huge responsibility to acknowledge this responsibility, <laughs> if I might say. Yeah. Uh, so Ian Bogust, the uh, author and thinker, wrote several years ago about free speech in video games. And at the time, there was a Medal of Honor game that was leaving behind the, the typical World War II setting of that series and modernizing. And there was this big controversy because they were going to have playable Taliban characters. It wasn't clear exactly to what extent, but eventually they caved under pressure from a bunch of different places. And it turned out that they just sort of stripped out Taliban and kept yeah. everything else the same in the game. The game didn't really change because that wasn't really an integral part of the game. It was just sort of a skin that you could have or not have or a name that you could have or remove. And so Bogust was critical because at that time, at least, it seemed like although people would defend video games as free speech, it didn't seem like the medium was really taking advantage of it. And if you could just choose to strip out the Taliban from your game at the very last second because of pressure, then it must not have really been an important part of your game anyway. Now we have this game that is entirely in Bolivia, a fictional version of Bolivia, and Bolivia is not happy about its portrayal in this game and has threatened to sue. So I don't know if you guys think that the industry as a whole or shooters specifically have gotten any better about this on the whole in the last several years since that piece was written. Ghost Recon suggests maybe not, but do you have any sympathy for the argument that we're just giving you things to shoot at and it doesn't really matter what they are or who they are and we shouldn't have to worry about that? Do you feel that there is a certain responsibility to provide a balanced view, at least if you're going to set your game in a real place? Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I think Hugo was kind of saying a little bit about that too, about realism and the idea that Propaganda, yeah, that's a scary word to use because it, it has <laughs> such a, a big, powerful meaning, right? But the stories that we tell as cultures and that we choose to repeat and engage with, we're not mindless automatons who just, you know, see something and then believe it. But it does have a subtle way, I think, of, of affecting us. You know, I think media and stories do affect how we understand our world. So choices of things like setting a game in Bolivia, I think is harmful in the sense that, you know, if if you're just the average North American, say, who has sort of a very basic understanding of Latin America, then mm -hmm. maybe you think that is Bolivia, you know, mm -hmm. maybe you think it's, yeah. it's not as bad as this game shows, but maybe you start kind of mixing it together. And this is one of the game's faults, but it does sort of give the impression subtly that, that maybe all these South American countries are not good places to be, you know, that they're mm -hmm. dangerous and and inherently corrupt and volatile. And Reed or, or Jason or anyone who's played it, can you give any specific examples for people who haven't played the game? Like what exactly did you find off-putting? Well, I'll, I'll let Reed answer in a second. But for me, it was it was mainly like, like you know, I've played, I've played every violent shooter there is. I'm not often troubled by violence in video games. For me, this game is, it's more about a shift in the wider culture 
that makes this game seem uh, especially troubling. And the mm-hmm. fact that there are obviously people in the world who are willing to take propaganda at face value and act on it in violent ways at times that makes this game troubling. But like, you know, like the very first thing the player sees when when you boot up this game is this monologue by El Sueño, the uh, very heavily tattooed head of the cartel. And like the fourth thing he says in the preamble before he goes on to say what his plan for the Santa Blanca cartel is, uh, is I had a dream. And then he Mm -hmm. goes on to say, and it's just like, you know, you just, it just gives you this really weird feeling. And the whole game is like that. Like it just feels not right. And, you know, you'll drive around with your kind of NPC squad mates and they'll have like, there'll be this banter. And one of the things that one of the guys says is, um, so the, do the Santa Blancas, do they really torture people? Or is it just like that soft stuff, like waterboarding, you know? <laughs> and it's like, it, and you're not really sure, like, it's not like Grand Theft Auto where you understand that the game is lampooning everything. You know, that mm-hmm. it's this heightened yeah. I- ironism. There's no, it's impossible to pin down a moral center in this game, you know, and I think that's what I, what I find troubling. What about you, Reed? Yeah, I mean, even even to that point, the game does, and, and I tried to mention this in the review to, you know, be as fair as possible to the thing. It does try to do that sort of tightrope walk of, it kind of points the finger back at, back at the u.s at the end and says this is the american war on drugs like maybe you're not gonna you know without without giving too many details about how it ends in case for some reason you want to go and play this game uh, for 60 hours and just feel awful all the time it, it does try to say you know this is the fault too of the americans and and their policies on drugs and government handling of, of the war on drugs but the game yeah, it's like what Jason was saying. It it's so hard to know where its center is, and everything about how you play it suggests that it's approving of the idea that you this is how you stop a drug cartel is you by any means necessary go in and just sort of eliminate them, which is pointless anyway. You know, if I may uh, take on uh, from yeah, there, please. of course. I am asking you guys who have played a game. Um, you you said that uh, it's hard to get the moral point. Of the game right yes mm-hmm. okay during my research i kind of find like three more intense way where we can find this moral code in the code of the game let's say and one of the thing is the language used to describe the others to describe this uh, drug cartels so how does the squad the, the ghost squad describe with with word with nicknames with stereotypical tagline or nasty description is there is there a specific language that are used by the fictional character to describe the others. Yeah, I, I don't know, Jason, if you want to jump in, but a, a few stuck out to me. It's mainly it, it mainly uh, leans on this kind of like almost TV cop kind of like there's a narco over there or, yeah. you know, there's a Sicario on the veranda, you know, that kind of stuff. The game, it, to its credit, tries pretty assiduously to not make any kind of uh, statements or, you know, name calling that could possibly be derogatory in a, in a racial way, but it uses those that kind of like language of organized crime movies and or pulp pulpy kind of like stories. It's like Miami Vice-ish. Yeah. <laughs> to its credit, this game is not super racist. Yeah, to its credit. <laughs> well, <laughs> Explicitly. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah the, the racism seems to be implicit. By creating mm-hmm. this kind of us versus them dynamics, you create another. And by creating another, you kind of reflect on him as something exotic, primitive, inferior in some way, or uncivilized. And therefore, it justifies the need for freedom, to be ironic, but it justifies colonization, it justifies war, it justifies ideological rejection. Because they are not us, it's them. They are not like us. Absolutely. There's even another point where you have these these socialist rebels who the idea is you're if you help them they can fight the cartel more effectively because they want Bolivia to be overthrown and back in power to the Bolivian socialists and then of course the 11th hour twist is that they all start shooting at you on your way to the final mission because they say they don't want the Americans to take the credit for overthrowing the cartel they want you know they want the Bolivians to have this so if it isn't enough that you kind of you equate Mexico and Bolivia as being essentially the same thing by it's like bewildering just transplanting Mexican culture and issues just onto Bolivia and and then later you say all, all Bolivians like essentially can't be trusted the game is telling you 
the only people you can count on when you're in South America or Latin America as a whole are other Americans, you know? So I don't think it's even, it's hardly even implicit. It's all right there and it's just sort of bubbling up and nauseous. So one interesting thing is that Ubisoft made a feature length Ghost Recon (laughs) Wildlands documentary, which I have not seen, but my impression from reading about it is that it tries to deal with these issues in a more serious way than the game does, at least. And obviously, it's partly for marketing, and maybe it's partly to take some of the heat off for the way that the game tells its story. But it's it's interesting that the same company would release this movie that seems to take a deeper reading of this situation than the game does. And I don't know what that says about video games or about the way that they're marketed or sold or bought, that they believe that people don't want this sort of thing in a video game or at least in a mass market shooter. I mean, it's not like every game ends up looking like Coast Recon Wildlands. We've obviously seen much better examples of video game storytelling than this. So it's curious that they would still see this sort of divide in what they could portray in one medium and in another. Oh yeah, if I might, um, I think you got a point. I mean, take for example, Spec Up the Line. It's kind of a envisioned as a special kind of shooter because it's going against the grain of the classic formula by presenting an American soldier loses loses their mind, loses their fight. It's tagged as a special shooter, or it kind of resurfaces a, a controversy between the warfare and my implication as a citizen, but also as a player. Uh, in this kind of military entertainment complex. And those kind of games that goes against against the grain, they become uh, something really special that comes out of the the whole lot of FPS game. And we can see that in the no Russian level of Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2. It it creates kind of a huge controversy because it depicts an American uh, infiltrated agent shooting at civilians and you're not supposed to show American doing uh, unjustified act of war and violence in video games. So yeah, the, the, the culture is unsure or unfamiliarized with this kind of anti-war discourses in video games. It, it's an impression, but I, I think it's it, it can be pretty solid. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I would also say that if you're going to approach a subject matter that's you know, has as much gravity to it as Mexican drug cartels and American involvement in in the war on drugs in Latin America. I, I think you have to approach it with some level of consideration. Mm-hmm. And you can tell it's, it's one of the really infuriating things about, to be frank, a lot of Ubisoft games that you can tell and they show how much research they've done into the cultures that the games take place in, and the history that they're setting the action against, but they for whatever reason, seem to kind of flatten everything and and refuse to take any kind of... I mean, this is a problem with a lot of mainstream entertainment in general, but they refuse to sort of take a stand or, or have an opinion about what they're portraying. This game, I think, could potentially have done something really interesting. I was kind of pulling for it to do something about... Yeah, same. Maybe pointing the finger back and saying, what are you doing? You know, like, the, is this not discomforting at all to be crashing a Jeep through <laughs> these these people's farms and... You know, just having firefights in the middle of a village and throwing grenades and stuff while civilians are running around screaming. It's just, uh, you know, it, they could have done it is is the really irritating thing. But I wonder about when you make something for so much money and it has to reach such a wide audience and it often seems like people don't really care. I mean, I think people are kind of kicking back against this one, which is heartening. But it, it often seems like you don't have to make a point with these games and everything can just continue being business as usual. I kind of hope this is a, a step too far or something and people will start talking about it more. Do you think that maybe this kind of um, really intense act of violence that you perpetrate in the in the Bolivian place and territory, do you think it might be a way to act as form of procedural rhetoric and to put you uh, on the front line and doing all those horrible things with the main goal of making you think about your action and how how horrible they are. I, I got to say, I, I was waiting for it to make you to be introspective in any kind of way. There is a moment when one of your squad guys says, you know, what do you expect people to do? Just run up to you and give you a hug? You're in their country, like walking down the street with a big gun. 
And then they cut, but then they kind of turned it around. The other guy who was talking to him, like, turned it around. He was like, well, you know, if he was, if he was as handsome as me, yeah, I'd give him a hug. You know, and then it just kind of became a joke. And it just, and it's, and it seemed like any time that the game was going to have you really think about something, it pulled back and didn't just pulled back, but reared back like far, you know, like a (laughs) hundred yards in the opposite direction and just swung like wildly to like the the jingoistic, really like imperial side of it. Yeah, that made me think of an example too, where I think you see a few times and maybe a few things come up where they talk about, you know, the coca leaf agriculture in, in Bolivia and how, you know, it's so much more, they try to explain the basic economics of you have to grow coca if you want to make money in a rural area of Bolivia. And you can see them kind of taking little steps towards maybe saying, you know, look at the recent history of, of Bolivia, where they've taken steps towards, you know, sort of limited legalization of coca and had great success in driving the cocaine cartels out of Bolivia. They get close to it and then they back away really quickly or they throw a joke in, like Jason was saying. I think if this game had no cutscenes or briefings or dialogue, you, you could maybe make that argument because you do feel kind of gross when you play it. But but I don't yeah. know if that's intended or if it's just... But even if it's not intended... Oh, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. The meaning of the of the artwork of the, of the game itself is not only on the side of the designers, it's also on the side of the player. So when you asked me this question at the beginning about realism, I say, yeah, realism could be dangerous, but it can also force the player like to rehumanize or resensitize itself and its involvement in digital violence and even physical violence perpetrated through war. And uh, one, one example of that is this podcast right now. We have this game, we argue that is is uh, really like an ideological pro-war game or pro-Western culture game, let's say, to generalize and be fast, but... Yeah, we talk about it and it did generate this argument between us where we kind of reflect on our relation to war, on our position in the military industrial complex. So yeah, for, for, for a player who has a critical thinking, it can be like a, something that trigger thought, that trigger argument, that triggers values, challenge belief systems, anyway, and so on. I wanted to just talk about realism for a second because there is something interesting with this game mechanically obviously the ghost recon series is very grounded in this kind of realism it you move slowly you reload kind of more in a realistic speed you're very vulnerable when you reload you can't jump around double jumps things of that nature it's very uh it incentivizes tactical play and ghost recon wildlands is is much the same but i found it really dissonant that when you drive away in a car without your squad, they just teleport into the car. I found that to be like the most lazy game design, like shortcut that absolutely cuts out the heart of their entire philosophy, like as a game. And I just found it bizarre. And I recalled something Hugo that you had told me when I interviewed you for the, my first person shooter piece was that the problem with realism in games is it creates an expectation of realism. Yeah. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. Um, when you have expectation based on reality, everything that doesn't seem real is kind of a exponentially unreal. You follow me? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, in a realistic setting, uh, players are really, really uh, more critics about the rendering of realism in the game. It's paradox, but it can be counter immersive because you spot that kind of a teleportation in the card, as you as you mentioned, because of the realism. If you if you were in a fictional setting or in a more sci-fi setting, you wouldn't get question this kind of teleportation maybe. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. So what would you guys advise, you know, the next company that's making a big budget shooter, would you just say either go far away from reality, don't set it in a real place, don't have real life analogs, you know, if you're not going to add depth and richness and nuance to the story, just make it as far from real life as possible or You know, if you're going to build this gigantic open world game, just spend as much time on the story as you are on the map and on the objectives and on the (laughs) graphics and on the physics. That seems like a a fair request. You know, it's it's tough because like we're saying, well, there's the the cocoa leaf trade and farmers and how do you squeeze that into your game and not make that off putting just someone wants to just have the quick twitch satisfaction of of shooting things on a screen how do you inject the story in an organic way well i think of wildlands almost as imagine trying to write you know a history professor gave you an assignment to write about the 
history of Mexican cartels. And you described everything, but you somehow managed not to have a thesis. <laughs> and then by not having <laughs> yeah. a thesis, That's you're a great underlying. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, but but somehow you had this sort of, I don't know, skewed opinion underneath it that you tried not to surface and it just becomes evident anyway. You know, I want shooters, all games really, to engage with, with our world. I want them to, you know, talk about things that are happening. I want them to set themselves in, in a contemporary war if the people making it feel like they can handle this, you know, because I don't think there's anything that separates a video game from a book or a film except for just conviction really so so i would say if you, if you just want the player to turn their brain off then yeah you know make um doom from last year i think was a good example of right of mm -hmm. kill yeah. demons you know it's just mm -hmm. <laughs> go to hell and just shoot demons and, and <laughs> right i mean there is some stuff going on in that game but you don't really have to think about it if you don't want to at all but if you want to have this thing where you want to be realistic and you want to set your your stories in a real place then have an opinion everyone has opinions if your opinion is something i disagree with then then that's fine but at least you've argued it and i can engage with it on that point but mm -hmm. yeah but the, the problem with you need to have an opinion is because if the opinion is ethnocentric you didn't go far from the debate. You didn't yeah. bring something up. You, you have to bring this yeah. multidimensional yeah. aspect of the conflict because if you have only one vision on the conflict, it's it's clearly ethnocentric. So there, it's a problem. Well, yeah, and I, I think you know that, that feeds in exactly with you see a lot of these video games and shooters that are trying to not have their opinion or they're, you know, they're trying to be apolitical and so they just make something that falls most in line with the prevailing ideology, right? I, I think Wildlands actually is a game like that, that just, you could say it, it does have an opinion, but I feel like it gets there by accident, sort of falls down a hill into an opinion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you, you can't evade your own ethnocentrism. Yeah, you have no. to work against it to propose a, a more a nuanced vision, a more subtle vision of, of a given conflict. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you on that. I think that's like, that's sort of what I mean when I say if they're trying not to say something, they're still saying something, you know? Yeah, exactly. So totally. if you're if you're trying to be not take a stand on the war on drugs, you're just sort of taking the default prevailing, I guess, ethnocentric is a good is a good word for it. Exactly. OK, well, this has been a fascinating conversation. I've been talking with Reed McCarter. You can find his work at Shooter at Bullet Points, which is his monthly podcast, as well as a place for his writing. And you can find him on Twitter at at Reed McCarter. We've also been talking with Hugo Montembeau, who's a doctoral student at the University of Montreal. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks, guys. Good talking to you. Thanks. Okay, thanks to you. All right, we'll be right back with Daniel Lee and Jeffrey Liang to talk about esports stats. Today's episode is brought to you by the Ringer University podcast. That's where you can find teed up hosts Mark Titus and Tate Frazier breaking down every game during March Madness. Subscribe to Ringer University right now and let our college basketball experts be your buddies for the whole tournament. All right, so I was at the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference earlier this month in Boston, and there seemed to be a much heavier esports presence than there had been at past conferences. And we're joined now by two people who presented at that conference. The first is Daniel Lee. He's a former top 100 competitor in Super Smash Brothers Melee and now provides stats and analysis and written content about the game. He's a coach for the Cloud9 team and also freelances for Yahoo, ESPN, and other outlets. And I wish we had time to talk about his day job, working for the Jet Propulsion Laboratory as a quality engineer. No time. We have to talk about esports. Hey, Daniel. Hey, how's it going? It's going well. And we're also joined by Jeffrey Liang, who's an MBA grad student at the London Business School. He does research on sports analytics, particularly esports and basketball. And he presented a paper at Sloan, which he researched in partnership with the League of Legends team Fnatic. So both of you are interested in the metagame and how competition changes over time. If I could just get you guys to go one by one, and I'll start with Daniel. Could you give us a short history of statistics in Super Smash Brothers? How they've become more sophisticated over time and how the analysis has advanced? Sure. Uh, we were the poverty of esports, meaning that our developers didn't create this cool data output that we can use. So for the longest time, we actually used no data. 
And it wasn't until recently that I created a database to categorize stages and characters that people would pick and to see if there's any advantages that people had based on what they chose. And so that's kind of where we are now. And now actually somebody Jimmy rigged a memory card that they put in the GameCube or the Wii that allows you to output frame by frame game data at any given point in time. And so we're going to be able to use that data in the future to get a lot more cooler metrics. And Jeff, you gave your talk on League of Legends, which is obviously a very data-rich game. Can you give us the high-level summary of MOBA, multiplayer online battle arena data, and League of Legends specifically? Yeah, it's an interesting contrast to Super Smash Brothers because there is the API that exists in LoL, but it's gated off a bit by what Riot chooses to release and not release to teams, analysts, managers, and the public in general. So as I was thinking about my own research within the meta of League of Legends, there was only a certain universe of data that I had access to and that anyone else would, in the public would have access to, which was champion pick ban outcomes. So with that in mind, it's an interesting kind of comparison between traditional sports and esports in terms of where the owners of the data choose to share it out with the public, comparing, let's say, what the NBA does, making their sports VU data available to all 30 NBA teams. We're not quite there yet in esports with League of Legends. Just to take a quick step back for uh, either of you guys, because I think a lot of people, even the video game players, aren't super well-versed in what meta refers to. Could you guys just give a quick definition of what you mean when you say meta? So the term meta you know, is a broad gaming term, but in League of Legends, it refers specifically to what is considered optimal and or dominant strategies within the game at any given time. And so the components of this tend to fall under which champions are most viable or where do they fall on the spectrum of relative strength, which items are relatively strong, which compositions are relatively strong, and then finally, which in-game strategies uh, are, again, considered most optimal over game over game. Uh, Generally, this meta is discovered through experimentation by high-level teams in kind of practice settings to find really what is the pinnacle of strategy in the game at the current state. Yeah, so how does that manifest itself in Smash Brothers? Is that something that only changes when a new game comes out, or is it constantly evolving through tournament play, and how dramatic can those developments be? Um, Each game is its own entity in the competitive scene, so you're going to see all four versions of Smash Brothers being played as their own kind of event. For the one I do a lot of research in, Super Smash Brothers Melee, it's been out for 15 years and there's no patches to it, so it's a little bit of a different experience than what League of Legends experiences, where there's a patch every two weeks. And so meta is not as much of a prevalent term because you know generally at this point most of the techniques that are available to everybody, you know what characters are good. And so it's not as shifting as much as we all know that Fox is the best character in the game and how do we just learn from what's optimal already. And we don't really have to change too much at this point because we don't have Nintendo tinkering with the numbers like every week and then having us rediscover, okay, this character is not as good as anymore. We just know that Fox is the best character. And Jeff, your paper focused on identifying these inflection points when Riot, the maker of League of Legends, makes a change. And in the past, I assume that would have been more of an informal, anecdotal, observational practice looking at how pros adapted. But you came up with a more rigorous way to pinpoint those pivots. So can you give us the layperson's summary of how you did that and tell us how destabilizing those updates can be? I guess to give a layman's summary of the change point analysis, basically the objective is to look at the timeline of changes that Riot implements in the game, which affect the meta. As Daniel pointed out, changes are happening pretty much every two to three weeks. And so that's very hard for esports analysts and managers and coaches to keep track of. So it's beneficial to think in terms of meta regimes, which are basically sub-segments of the timeline that are relatively cohesive in nature and then distinct shifts in meta represent really where there are macro level changes happening to the game. This uh, algorithm is basically a change point algorithm, which goes through time series and looks at the distribution of champion pick ban outcomes. So which champions were picked, banned, or neither picked and banned, and identifies where those probabilities of being picked or banned see macro level shifts. And you, you can kind of, in this school of statistics fine-tune the model 
to give you different levels of discerningness between metas. So you can come up with a one that really looks at only a handful of, of metas or one that looks at really finite, shorter period submetas. So it's generally an approach that I'm hoping to introduce for the community to understand and, and have a tool to understand when certain timelines are really shifting at a macro level. Who are your top CVS scoring champions right now? And is there any is there any broad outline of the type of character who seems like they're going to end up having a high champion viability score? Generally, I'd say like the strongest champions in the game tend to be newer because as Riot releases champions over time, the data is indicating that time over time, as new champions are released, there's gradual power creep. You know, I've introduced this new statistic of champion viability score, and we see that it goes up by about 0.8 points every 10 champions that released. So champions like, you know, Rek'Sai, Azir are relatively newer, and we're really high priority in the meta for long periods of time. And Daniel, you tweeted something about how you can distinguish a really good Smash player from a mediocre one in seconds, and I assume that's based on the eyeball test, but are there certain statistical indicators that stand out in the data and help set certain players apart? So the eyeball test is pretty much like when you watch basketball, like if you have a person that can't dribble correctly, you can know that right away within a few seconds. So I think that's where the eye test applies, or you know that with a well-oiled machine of an NBA team, they know where to go. They know where to cut. Um, you can notice that really quickly if you have an eyeball for Smash. But in terms of statistics, um, one statistic I've been working on is something called openings per kill, meaning like how many combos or how many openings that you get on your opponent does it take you to kill your opponent. And the better players, for the better players, that number is going to be really small, uh, meaning that they're only going to need like one to two combos, maybe three to four on a different stage to kill their opponent. Whereas the really new players are going to need 10 to 15 openings to get their kill. So it's an efficiency in the amount of damage they do per hit, which is really big. And the other statistic that's really important is actually center stage control. And I'd say this is kind of similar to like time of possession where you want to stay in the middle in Smash Brothers because if you get hit towards the edge, then it's more likely you're going to die. So people want to favor being in the middle. And we kind of call that the high ground of Smash. And the people who control that greatly over 50% tend to do a lot better in their interactions with their opponent. Could you give us like a brief kind of a rundown on a rankings of, of Smash characters that are people should or shouldn't pick depending on their experience with the game? Uh, sure. So in Melee, there's many tiers, but I like to say these like two categories. One is these characters can win a major where everybody's attending all the really good players. And below that line are characters that absolutely have like no chance at winning a super major. And so Fox <laughs> is um, by far the best. He has the best tools best mobility ridiculous like properties that he has and then there's a bunch of characters below that are debatable so there's falco uh, Sheik, marth and jigglypuff um, which i've all seen some degree of success and then we have some characters that are questionable but like see you know some things here and there and that's ice climbers i guess you can throw peach a little bit higher captain falcon and those are generally seen as the eight characters that can win a super major with everybody there. Yeah, I still play Super Smash 64, and I'm just addicted to Donkey Kong. I know he's a lower tier character and puts me at a disadvantage, not that it matters at my skill level, but his moveset is so much fun that I can't give him up. So when I was working on an article on esports stats last year, everyone I talked to would make analogies to traditional sports, and sometimes those work really well, and other times not so much, but... It does seem as if basketball and MOBAs have a kind of chemistry in common. Are MOBAs difficult games to project? If you want to try to forecast how Team X would do with player Y, can you account for communication and uh, meshing of skill sets? Are MOBAs more like that or are they like baseball where for the most part players' production doesn't vary that much depending on their teammates? So in basketball, like when you had LeBron and Dwayne Wade together, the big issue was usage. Um, who's going to carry the ball? Are they going to run the same cuts? And how's the ball going to be distributed on offense? And so that was a big struggle for them. There's different types of players in league. There's people that love to hog the resources, meaning that they take a lot of the gold on the map so that their character can be stronger. And when you have three people that demand a lot of resources, it's equivalent to having three chuckers on your team in basketball that really need the ball a lot. And so sometimes you can have three superstars 
together on a league team, and it just doesn't synergize that well. And then you have these Shane Battiers, you have these Steve Nashes that are on the team, they play a support role, they communicate and keep the morale going, and they also play call for the team, and they lead them in a direction. So their value, they may not fill the box score with kills, and all these you know stats that people kind of look at, but their influence on synergizing with other people are a lot higher because of the other intangible roles they play. So a lot of the North American league teams, they add in Korean players, and they think that it's going to plug and play, but there's usually an adaptation period and an adjustment period that really happens between the players before they actually get good. Yeah, and that's an interesting um, perspective from a player side. The same thing actually exists in league also on a champion side compositions is a really important part of the strategy of competitive teams and so there's clearly synergistic champion sets that form strong compositions for example coupling poke with disengage on your team is a great combination and it's it's quite potent or stacking a lot of divers with stuff like Shen that really complements and synergizes in terms of kits as well, also sees a lot of increase in value in terms of what compositions you put together. With a team sport like basketball, one of the holy grails of stats is kind of what we've been talking about this last few questions is how do you separate a player's influence and isolate it from his teammates and figure out what is the true nature of, of that player. With, with League and with Smash, it's a little different because you've got a player playing as a character that has its own preset abilities and weaknesses. How do you isolate the influence of the player from the character? Is there a way to do that statistically yet, or is that just kind of uh, in the ether? So the way I like to think about it is actually that some of the most basic information can be the most revealing. What I like to look at is in champion pickbang outcomes from competitive matches. And what is baked within and hidden within this data set is the vast amount of hours of resources, hours of dedicated analysts' times from these competitive teams researching which champions are higher or lower on the spectrum of viability. And so it is kind of isolating out and disentangling the impact that the player who's piloting the champion has. Because if you keep seeing teams at the top, middle, and bottom ends of the standings picking certain champions or banning certain champions, that is a clear indication that the best minds in the game are believing that this is a strong champion. And to add to that, you have so many moving variables in League, um, whereas in basketball, the ball doesn't change size, the three-point line doesn't change like every week. And so it's really hard to compound, well, is this team success based on the players, their teammates, the coaching staff, or the meta? And there are certain players, for example, that do really well with certain types of champions in their position, but sometimes the meta changes and they have to play another type of role. So sometimes a top winner has to play a tank a role where they're really defensive and really buff. Sometimes they have to play a different role and sometimes players struggle because of that. And then another question is, well, we have, you know, Faker and Korea with SKT. How much are their teammates benefiting because Faker has a Steph Curry-like draw to him where all the other teammates from the other team will swarm against him, opening up opportunities for their teammates to do whatever they want. And so how much does that, of an influence does that play? And there's so many factors that go in that's really hard to tell. And given that they don't really play on a consistent patch for a lot of games, it's really hard to quantify. So esports would seem to have an advantage over traditional sports from an analytical perspective in that every batter ball sport has to come up with some technological solution for tracking players and tracking the ball, whether it's stat cast in baseball or sport view in basketball, whereas esports at least theoretically have that ability built in. It's all digital. Everything could be tracked, but it's not always accessible. It's not always provided by the developer. So is there enough of a benefit to releasing that information for Nintendo or Riot or Valve when it comes to Dota that there is incentive to release that information? Or do we still see a disconnect between what analysts want to have and and what companies are willing to give them. Yeah, it's interesting if you think about the incentives of the, let's say, largest game studios behind the most popular esports titles, because the business that they're in is not only publishing the game and running their own leagues, but generally speaking, they also produce their own content, both editorial and news and journalistic. And so they're kind of also serving that role as your ESPN, your The Ringer, who is generally the party that's spearheading the analytics movement behind it all. So 
there is a bit of disincentive or incentive for Riot to keep that information proprietary so that they can have a lot of the interesting discussion around, let's say, jungle proximity, which is a measure of how close the jungler tends to spend their time in the three various lanes, top, mid, and bot. That information, as far as I know, is not really readily available to any other news agency, media company, or players in general. And from a Smash Brothers perspective, I see both sides of the coin, and Nintendo kind of plays more on the casual audience, meaning that they're not going to be hardcore competitors going to events. On one hand, if you provide that data, you have a higher peak potential for play because that data will drive better decision making. But on the flip side, when you look at the casual audience, when you have a group of players that are hardcore enough to really look at this data and find hidden advantages that aren't really intuitive to what's what you see on the game screen, um, it could discourage a casual player to say, well, hey, like I don't want to have to research all this data to become decent at this game. And so... Sometimes it might not be in the best interest for the developer to release every bit of information because you don't want the skill curve to go so high that it's discouraging to a new player that may want to just play for fun. How would you describe the strategies either Nintendo or Riot uses to balance their game when they introduce new heroes? I know it's going to be a little different for Smash, but I'm trying to get an idea of like how much thought really goes into it do they just drop a hero hey this guy that huge amount of damage or a lot of healing and this one is really mobile or this one isn't and and how much do they think about upsetting a previous meta and what is their strategy when they release a new character are they trying to kind of nerf an existing meta in order to drive popularity or are they trying to completely overturn a new meta or are they trying to uh, strengthen things that they've seen in previous metas. So at least on some degree, I could talk about it because Smash for the Wii U, the newest version, actually had a handful of patches. And from what I've seen and observed in their trends, so they don't even release patch notes, which is actually a pet peeve of mine. So they don't tell you what they changed and you kind of have to figure it out as a community, which is interesting. But they generally um, see what is doing well in tournament and then they nerf those top characters they like give them slightly less damage they make their kill power slightly less and so from the general philosophy i haven't really seen them do a lot of buffs to bad characters as much as nerfing the top tier characters in that game and whenever they release a new character they have like a bunch of new mechanics in it and i think that jeff can attest that whenever league releases a new character it seems like they add like five new mechanics to him and they make him a lot more complicated than what exists and you can see that with a lot of the characters that they added to Smash 4 with Bayonetta, Ryu. They have all these sorts of crazy mechanics and they're generally seen as very strong characters. And so it seems like they want to encourage the purchasing of those characters because you have to buy them for like 5 to $6 a piece. That it's in their best interest to make them cool, interesting, and also like slightly overpowered. Yeah, that's absolutely the same dynamic you see in League of Legends. More and more interesting and complex mechanics which generally are harder to balance, obviously, than raw numbers. Balancing around ability kits is kind of the art as opposed to the science behind champion balance. And you do very much see, I think, that Riot's mentality in releasing new champions isn't necessarily to change up the game or change up the meta in competitive. I think for, for the most part, they're thinking about releasing new champions for their general published game out, out for everyone to enjoy at all levels of play from people who don't play ranked all the way to challenger. So there is a, a bit of a difference between the esports side and what Riot is trying to do in releasing their new champions. So I come from a baseball background. Jason comes from a basketball background. In both of those sports, every team has some kind of quantitative analysis department. There is a big gap between what the public knows and what you hear on a broadcast and then what teams know. So what's the state of that knowledge in esports? How many teams are embracing analytics? Is there still a ton of room for inefficiencies to be found? I'd say very much for League of Legends, but I think probably this applies more generally to esports of all kinds is that sports analytics, esports analytics is generally still in its infancy. There's a lot of, you know, green grass ahead to be explored. Some of the more sophisticated investors that are getting into League of Legends, so a lot of the NBA owners and a lot of the VC funds that are backing some of the new teams are very much of the school of thought from traditional sports of 
seeing so much value in analytics in baseball, basketball, and so on and so forth. And so I think that is trickling its way into esports. There is more and more research in this space. And I think in the next couple of years, it's probably where you'll see a real explosion in the amount of knowledge base that gets released from all sorts of new analytics that come to bear and to add in the realm of smash we're the poverty esport in that <laughs> league of legends <laughs> um league of legends players get paid probably if you want to own a league of legends team and you want to own a smash player on your team a smash player is probably one to two percent of a league of legends team in salary and resources required per year and as far as analytics go i'm i'm the second coach in existence for the game and so that kind of shows like how behind we are players have discovered recently that water is good for you you should drink it during the day of competition <laughs> um, sleep is good for you not getting drunk the night before is good for your gameplay so we're really behind and for me i think there's a with all these stats are going to be coming out of that jimmy rig memory card i think there's a lot of room for improvement and i think people who have access to the data and can make tactical adjustments based on what we see are going to have a huge advantage down the road maybe not next year because we're still really poverty but maybe like two to three years down the road all right well do you guys want to plug anything places people can find you or good sources for them to read if they're interested in learning more about esports analytics Daniel, you want to go first? Well, I mean, first of all, thanks for having me. If you want to see my um, Melee content-related videos, I'm on Yahoo Esports. And if you just go to YouTube and type in Melee Science, you'll find a lot of my videos about the narratives that are going on and also just some little deeper insight into the game. Yeah, thank you, Ben, for inviting us on. I uh, really enjoyed the conversation. If you want to learn more about my paper exploring champion viability in League, it's available on the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics website if you go under research papers. And I'm very much interested in pursuing more projects, I think, in the coming year. So happy to field any ideas from the community and uh, anyone interested in exploring topics. All right. Well, thanks, guys. I wish we could talk twice yeah. as long because this is a fascinating subject, but I think you gave us really a good is. overview. So we appreciate your coming on. Thank you. All right, cheers. Thanks, guys. All right, so that is it for today. You yes. and I are going to spend the next few days immersed in yeah. Mass Effect yes. Andromeda. Yes, trolling space for sex once again. Yes. <laughs> That's the, the privilege of rank <laughs> yes. in the Mass Effect universe and hopefully not so often in this one. Yeah. So we're going to talk about that next time. We're also going to talk about Moral Combat. Yeah. A new book about video game violence that's out today. And we'll be back on Friday. See ya. <laughs>